0: Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Informations 411, your weekly look at the stories that The Information wrote this week. My name is Tom Doton. I'm a reporter here at The Information. I kind of stumbled at the intro. Here's what we've got for you this week. First off, I'm talking to Priya Nan and Kevin Dugan about the relationship between tech companies and the banks that handle their IPO. Both Kevin and Priya uncovered an interesting anecdote of how Zscaler, a SaaS company, put out there kind of as a desire, request, um, deeply helped hope that the banks that manage their IPO would also be clients of theirs, would be customers that use their product. And that raises all kinds of interesting questions about whether it is ethical, rational, above board, whatever you want to say to have these banks using this product and theoretically boosting the company's bottom line. Uh, it's, it's definitely a gray area and Kevin and Priya do a good job breaking down that relationship, you know, what is the status with uh, regulators on this kind of activity, and generally, you know, how this IPO sausage gets made. Also, it's it's Kevin's debut on the podcast, so be nice to him. And then I'm talking to Kate Clark, also debuting uh, on the podcast, about Lambda School, a coding school that she dug into and the income sharing agreement that they have with their students. So essentially, if you are a Lambda School student, instead of paying a tuition, Lambda School has the right to 17% of your salary uh, for the first two years once you get a job. The thinking, obviously, is that they are more aligned with your interests, that you would go to the coding school and get a job, and they would benefit from that. Uh, but also, the amount that they're taking, the nature of the school itself, uh, which is potentially trying to raise a new round, and just these coding schools in general uh, make for uh, uh, a very telling story about what tech uh, is like these days. And What it's like being a student i think uh hoping to make your way in the world those are the stories we have coming to you this week nothing to plug so let's just get on over to uh first off my conversation with kevin and priya all right so we have the two authors of this story here priya non kevin dugan uh kevin's out of new york Priya's with uh with me here in the studio and I think best off to just explain the Zscaler story. Um, and this was uh, in their kind of lead up to their IPO from a few years ago, and they had an interesting conversation with their with their bankers. So, Kevin, why don't you explain sort of what Zscaler was doing?
1: Sure. So this was back in twenty seventeen. Um, this was prior to when Zscaler was looking it was going to be going public. Um, they were meeting with bankers, and they were determining. Uh, who was going to be their underwriter and who would uh, sell the most shares. This is an extremely lucrative uh, job for banks. They make millions of dollars in fees and commissions by selling the uh, initial shares for the IPO. Um, So one of those banks we know was Barclays. And Barclays, uh, they had been a customer of Zscalers. They had been using it. Um, but during the meetings to determine who would be getting uh, a higher share of the uh, of the IPO uh, the CFO uh, his name is Remo Canessa um, he had said to them in, in what was described to me as a very serious in a very serious way that they wanted a syndicate made up of customers and the implication according to the person who I spoke with was that, this what they they better sign up like the banks better sign up in order to get on the deal um, that they wanted, uh, you know, to to build up. This was essentially a, a sales a time for sales for the company.
0: Right. Right. Um, because just essentially just as a quick matter of explaining here, like these are like you say, it, it's a it's a bake off. Essentially, banks are yes. lobbying hard to get in on these things because it's very lucrative and
2: and enterprise tech ipos are the the hot thing on wall street these days everyone wants in on those deals in particular it's like the sexy area nowadays
0: yeah sure so so this was probably going to be you know a more successful ipo than what we saw for example yeah sure and 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 many others with at least you know the ones that even made it um and so the, the implication here is like there's a lot of leverage that these companies have when they're picking the banks and they can kind of make them jump through hoops uh, to get them to, you know, be part of this final group that gets to, you know, feed from the trough of the IPO riches.
2: Yeah, and look, every, it's, 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 you know, pretty common for bankers to try to. Sweet talk their way into getting on these deals to say how much they love the product themselves to show up, you know As Matt Levine wrote in his newsletter about our story today to show up in, you know, like Lululemon pants If they're pitching Lululemon or whatever it might be the, I remember um,
0: Morgan Stanley, which managed or got into the Uber IPO uh, the, the Yeah, lead Michael Grimes, yeah.
2: Moonlighted for Uber or like drove for Uber and, and that's part of his his pitch usually didn't he when he was Pitching for the Snap IPO, didn't he, like, rent an apartment in Venice and try to monitor his kids' Snap usage and thing like things I, like
0: that? I, 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 sure, I don't remember that specifically. I do remember I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when Snap had its uh, its debut, and there were bankers with Snap spectacles all over the place, just wandering around. Which, by the way, one of the few people that ended up even buying spectacles. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, like, Kevin, you're very close to all this stuff, you know, out of New York covering the banks. I mean... Is this sort of thirsty activity by the bankers, not to the degree that you're describing here, and we'll get into that, but the general kind of thirstiness of wanting to get in, just kind of part of the culture there?
1: So it is and it isn't. So there um, there is, there are lots of things that bankers do in order to win favor. Um, they will extend, uh, you know, if, if a company's CEO wants a mortgage, they might give him a really favorable uh uh interest rate. If they you know they want to do banking, they'll they'll do they'll bend over backwards for them. But there is uh there are very specific rules about what you can and cannot do. And what you cannot do is what's called tying. And that's when you say, I will do this in order to get this other business. That is explicitly illegal. Um, and so nobody is accusing anybody of doing anything illegal in this story. Um, but when in discussions with with bankers here they said that it's, it's kind of getting a little bit close to that it's getting a little bit uncomfortable um because they feel that in order to do this business then they have to then the onus is on them to buy in when um you know they may not have the budget for it or uh it's it's it would be hard for them to otherwise get
2: uh, and it- go ahead This story came about because we had been hearing from various bankers over the course of a few months that they were like, you know, if you want to get business, if you want to get any business from these IPOs these days, this is like what you're told. And it's sort of like, depending on where you're at, it may or may not be possible for your bank to become a customer. It may or may not. The the pressure. Well, you know, it. It was clear in a story that, you know, we're not saying that there was a mandate in the case of Zscaler or anything like that. Right. The story says, like, four out of 11 underwriters actually ended up being customers or something like that. Um the pressure gets turned on, and it's this awkward song and dance where, like, the ask is made, and then the question is, like, are you going to get on the deal if you don't become a customer? Does this hurt your likelihood to do other deals? It puts you lower in those industry league tables, which I, I think, Kevin, you know, those have value, right, in the industry as sort of like a horse race on who's winning and who's losing and who's got experience and who doesn't.
1: And it's, it's not just in terms of, um, like, a uh... – uh, uh, bragging rights but it also they can use it to sell for next year saying you know we were the you know the number three uh underwriter last year when the year before we had been number seven we're clearly on the upswing uh so it, it really does matter and it, and it does uh influence future, future deals
0: so sorry to ask the kind of dumb question here but um i'll do it because i normally do um what like what exactly is wrong with this i mean like why well, like ethically, or or I don't know. Like who's who's the victim of a situation where companies like you know act like a act like a dog and, and roll over for me? I'm the so company that ma- makes the choice of who's part of my syndicate.
2: The securities experts we spoke with said the question here is if a bunch of banks are doing this ahead of a company's IPO, is that inflating their revenue from a lucrative sector that spends a lot on you know IT, for example? Um, ahead of their IPO and potentially affecting the perception of investors and then the question becomes like if they're doing this just to get on the deal are they going to bail after like a year if they don't need the IPO business anymore and they kind of have that relationship already and you know they got the deal they they built that relationship they move on they don't necessarily keep their contract going. These are all questions that have been raised to us by securities experts so that was sort of you know the basis of our story like the, the question is should this be disclosed more the relationships that underwriters sometimes have with the company that they're bringing to IPO
1: right and and these you know these uh, contracts that they could have with the banks uh, some people thought well you know in the grand scheme of things they may not be so big but um, these are very large banks I mean JB Morgan has an 11 billion dollar IT budget um, just as an example um, we're not accusing J.P. Morgan of doing anything wrong. But um, what's small to J.P. Morgan might be very big to uh, a smaller tech company. And um,
2: and what's small to, to J.P. Morgan, when you multiply that by you know two or three or four, if you're talking about multiple banks, maybe they're you know not the same size of a, of a contract as J.P. Morgan. That adds up, right, ultimately, for a small tech company.
1: Right. And investors take the numbers that they're given – like, for instance, uh, revenue or forward cash flow, and they extrapolate from there. So they can say, well, if this is the number now, then over 10 years, we might expect reasonably to see this. And then they would pump up the value of of the shares. Um, You know, and it's... It might seem all kind of abstract, but at the end of the day, these are stocks that end up in mutual funds, in people's 401ks. They end up uh, in in pension plans. So you know, these are it's, it's not just a small specialized group. Once you get into the public markets, there's no way of of telling who is affected and why and how. But so
0: essentially, what you guys are saying here, though, is that the banks were not like basically able to fairly adjudicate the quality of the company. Uh, because of this relationship
2: it's not it's not about the banks f- being you know, the ones fairly adjudicating it's the question is the open question is how Much revenue is coming in because someone nudged the bank to become a customer to get the deal and when this happens with multiple banks like how much revenue is that in total for these companies? And are they sticking around as customers and does that affect like you know what what the revenues are that that investors then see and make their decisions and their models for, for themselves off of like, that's the open question, right? Like how much do these additional relationships that underwriters have and the ask that's made sway the company's bottom line? So there was action? a term
1: that I, sorry, Tom. there was a term that I, I had heard near the, uh, the end of my reporting. Um, it, it didn't make it into the story, but, but people call these, these kind of uh, these contracts shelfware. You know, they, they, meaning that they buy it and it sits on the shelf. And uh, so, I mean, it's common enough that it has its own derogatory name. Um, Well,
2: you know, and, and the question is, is it shelfware also, right? Like in some cases, maybe. And in some cases, maybe a bank really has a legitimate need for a certain kind of security technology or whatever. Right. So again, it's like that question has, has come up and been raised to us by multiple people though, like. You know, are the banks even using the stuff they sign up for to get the deals?
0: Right, right. What am I going to do with 900 pairs of spectacles now? Um, so what uh, what really is going to be done uh, going forward? I mean, do you expect to see more serious regulation, even legislation coming about that's going to stop this sort of activity from being as commonplace as you guys describe?
1: I doubt that there's going to be any legislation because securities laws are, you know, they're pretty set. Um, and it's very rare for new securities laws to come in. I mean, what's fraud is fraud. Um, I I would expect that regulators might take a closer look at, um, you know, if there's uh, a strange underwriter who is, you know, not particularly adept at, uh, you know, taking a company to market, that all of a sudden they've got the third or fourth biggest allotment. Um, They might try to understand why or at least force a disclosure. Um, I mean,
2: I think I think the first step was us like putting this the story has never been out there before. Right. And I think people maybe didn't have outside of the folks in these bake offs. I, I don't know if a broad range of people had an understanding of the fact that this pay to play kind of dynamic has become very pervasive and common from what both Kevin and I have heard in this industry. So I think that's, like, the first step. And and what you're asking about, you know, what the ramifications might be from regulators is, like, you know, I think people will have an awareness now and, and like Kevin said, maybe – Take a closer look at what's going on with these deals. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, my last question is, do you think there's also going to be a move towards more transparency? I mean, one of the amazing things that I kind of figured out in watching Snap's lead up to their IPO was how much of this happens behind closed doors. I mean, with Snap, it would be their, you know, chief strategy officer and, and Evan Spiegel going into these hotels and doing these private presentations. And it would always be like someone would get a banker that was there to leak, you know, what the nature of the presentation was. And it's all very, you know, smoke-filled rooms kind of stuff, which is incredible for a process that is, you know, uh, ostensibly about making something a publicly traded good. I mean, is there a move to just have broader transparency throughout the process?
1: I think that it's possible that we will see more uh, banks disclosing if they are customers um of a company currently or, or
2: companies disclosing if the bank if the banks are in their yes. you know one. prospectus their S1 when they list out important customers
1: right because it, it it is a potential conflict of interest um and that hasn't really been explored too much and um you know it, it it i could see a world where especially with software investors they would want to understand the relationship between the bank and the company better
0: Got it. Uh, Well, fascinating stuff, guys. Glad you were able to get it out in the open. And uh, I guess we'll see what comes of it all. Thanks for joining.
2: Thanks for having us. Great. Thank
0: you. All right, Kate, first off, welcome to the Informations 411, your, your first appearance on the podcast.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So you looked into Lambda School, which is a coding school that has a very interesting model, uh, stands out among all the many coding schools out there. And, and obviously, there's some controversy that you dug into in the piece. But before we get into the controversy, why don't you sort of explain the Lambda School way? How, how does Lambda School approach uh, tuition and uh, relationship with students?
3: Yeah, so Lambda School is a Y Combinator graduate. So it got a lot of buzz just right off the bat, graduating from that accelerator, which is very popular in San Francisco. And it raised a lot of money um, quickly too, because it uh, has an innovative business model um, that relies on income share agreements. So students that enroll to learn to code or to learn UX design, um, they actually agree to give Lambda School 17% of their income for two years after they land a job in the relevant field.
0: Right, okay, 17%, pretty substantial amount. I mean, that's like- yeah getting up to almost like a fifth of your income.
3: Right. The payments are actually quite large and it's pre-tax as well. So if there's a, you have to be making at least 50 grand, but it's still, it's like $700 a month or something that it actually equals to. So it's quite, quite hefty.
0: And I mean, as your story makes clear, this has worked pretty well for Lambda School. I mean, and and as far as investment goes, and you spoke to the founder CEO of Lambda in, in the piece, like. VCs are angling to get in on this. This seems like a really good business to them.
3: Right? Yeah, VCs are really excited about the innovative business model. I think VCs get excited when they see a company that looks different from the rest. So there are a lot of coding academies, um, and there actually are a few now that do use ISAs. Um, but for the most part, they, they're funded in more traditional ways, like upfront payments or pay-as-you-go or something like that.
0: Right, okay. So what, What? I mean, and, and the thing that got you into this piece, I imagine, was complaints coming from some former students about... The nature of these agreements?
3: Actually, it was more, um, you know, just like being in the circle of venture capitalists and hearing, uh, you know, just rumors about them fundraising. So mm-hmm. I was interested more in that fundraising perspective, um, because that's often how I hear about startups. Um, and as I sort of dug in, I, I was able to talk to a lot of students who, who did complain about the quality and disorganization and sort of feeling like they were guinea pigs at Lambda schools. So kind of... Um, because it's a young school and because they're still figuring it out, the students felt like they were test subjects, which Mm. isn't really the best feeling if you're going to give a portion of your future income. Right,
0: right. Okay, so explain to me the disorganization, though. They just felt like the actual curriculum wasn't that strong.
3: Well, so uh, one thing I should have said is Lambda School is fully remote, so none of these students are face-to-face with their instructors or their fellow students. Um, They rely on Slack and Zoom and Notion and some other, you know, big tech companies that facilitate remote work, um, which I think often leads to sort of a bit of a chaos. Um, I think they felt they had a hard time getting in touch with instructors when they needed to. They had a hard time, you know, getting help when they needed to. Um, I think there's a lot of collaboration that goes on that sort of falls apart. Um, So not only were they feeling like this curriculum was was really half-baked, but also Their ability to, you know, get help and work with other classmates was really hard.
0: Right, right. Um, But then, you know, into the issue about the income sharing agreements. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was also a point of tension for them. They felt like it was just onerous. The amount that they were taking from them was prohibitively expensive given you know how much they were making given the quality yeah the quality too yeah
3: and what they're making definitely um i mean you know it's great that lambda school says like you you don't have to pay a back pay back anything for you know until you get a job and if you don't get a job within five years of graduating you pay back nothing ever right which is great although you know if you're not able to get a job yeah
0: you've got other things you're worried about right
3: exactly but um yeah the income share agreements are a little controversial um i think people are excited by this because student loans are i mean it's a it's a yeah. major crisis Right well,
0: I mean it strikes to me As a very Silicon Valley Way of thinking about things And I mean It's, it's like a purely Capitalistic approach Right mm-hmm. It's like a school Is an investment In your education Right That's what parents Always say yeah. As to why they're doing it Well this is a literal Investment in your education They essentially Own a percentage of you uh, at least as far as your They're job is They're taking a stake concerned. in you, yeah. exactly. And so right.
3: the, the argument from supporters of Lambda School um, and Lambda School itself is that they are better aligned with the student and the uh-huh. student's goal than, say, a traditional school is who's... who's or, you know, who the loan industry. Right.
0: You're basically, you know, they, they have a relationship with you after your graduation, whereas the school is basically you're a customer for the length of time right. that you're there. And then, you know, aside from asking you for alumni dues or things like that, you're yeah. a non-entity.
3: But the for-profit schools just as a, as the entire industry is difficult. And I think there are a lot of problems across the board. And there's probably a lot more to say um, about those schools, not just Lambda School, that I think is having Problems scaling the business and I think we'll probably hear more about that yeah
0: well the I've noticed kind of in the comments in your story after it was published with people saying I understand the ISA sure it's an interesting experiment maybe it's aligned incentives but 50,000 seems like it's really low to have as your base amount I mean if you're making 50,000 in the coding world just given how much people make around these parts that's not very much no and it's not. you're giving up a lot if you're living in god forbid San Francisco making 50,000 um, and you're giving away seventy. I think that that's rough,
3: right? I mean, you know, keep in mind a lot of these students live in.
0: Yeah, it's remote. It's remote. Yeah, they can right. live anywhere in the U.S. and I yeah. think
3: even and also in in um the European Union. But like, it's true. I mean, when I was looking at the chart and keeping in mind that it's pre tax inc- uh, pre tax um, salary, it is a quite a big chunk. I mean, I I, I understand if you're. You're in debt and you're paying off your loans. You may also be paying a lot a lot right. back, but it's it, it There are certainly downsides and I think um, it was interesting to do this story because the people who do support lambda school um, Are very 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 passionate about lambda school sure
0: unsurprising uh, So what did you hear after the story was published? I mean did people reach out to you either from lambda? happy that this got out there were there people at other coding schools that have similar business models that were like you 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 know, you've completely got it wrong and you've tarred with the only thing that makes sense in profit education?
3: I did. Uh, there were reactions. Um, for the most part, I'm hearing from people who are stu- students or former employees at other types of schools who have similar complaints. I didn't. I thought I would get more people saying, like, you don't understand. This is the future. This is amazing. I, I really didn't. I, I'm hearing from people who are like, yeah, I agree. Huh. There are some problems. So that's why I think there's probably more to say across this code school industry. That's still kind of like figuring itself out or maybe it just doesn't work as well as it seems.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what next do you do? You, I mean, are you interested in this space? I mean, are there other coding academies that you think, um, you know, merit this sort of coverage? Do you see this business model spreading also to others?
3: I don't know if I see the ISA. So, like, from part of the research in my story, you know, I learned there are universities sort of piloting programs like this, and the Department of Education is is considering um, support for it. Um, There's legislation. So maybe we'll see more if there's more regulation, because right now it's kind of like the wild, wild west for ISAs. But um, I am interested in the code schools and the for-profit schools, but there aren't really others like Lambda School that have you know, the CEO who's kind of famous in tech, sure. and who has all this charisma and who is telling his story uh, so effectively. So I don't know if there's really others that merit as much coverage, but I think I'll probably keep an eye out on the space and see what I can learn.
0: All right. Well, interesting stuff. Thanks for joining, Kate.
3: Thanks.